Uh, when was the last time that you groaned? Well, unless you are a hippo, uh, groaning is a sign that not all is well. Uh, I've been groaning quite a lot over this last month. Uh, as you may know, I started over 45 soccer, which is a very foolish thing to do, trying to relive my youth. And I have incurred an injury where I ripped all the muscles in my rib cage, And that has made life very uncomfortable for the last five weeks now. I've also been inflicted with a respiratory problem. Uh, I have constriction in my airway, and particularly at night it's depriving me of sleep. So I can't sleep, I end up groaning. And finally, I've also lost the sense of smell to top it all. And without my hooter working, I can no longer determine which of my clothes can be used for another day, and which has to go in the wash. It means now I'm now totally dependent on Tracy for that decision. And of course, her standards are far higher than mine. So maybe that's a good thing. In many different ways, we groan. Uh, my woes are light and momentary compared to the groans of many, including many of you here. Because for all people, uh, whether Christian or not, their experience of life in a fallen world will inevitably include groaning. Uh, of course, we groan, and many of you here groan from poor health, uh, from exhaustion, from depression, from chronic fatigue. Uh, many of you here groan in the frailty of age or know those of loved ones who are groaning in the frailty of age. Uh, we groan from grief and bereavement, the loss of loved ones, the loss of relationships. Uh, we groan from relational tensions and problems and the breakdown of relationships and rebellious children. We groan from economic loss or hardship. And do we not groan when we watch the evening news and we see global disasters, acts of evil, civil unrest, and wars. In many ways, uh, we groan. That's part of life now. And that's true for all people. But on top of that, Christians have other reasons to groan. Because we as Christians also groan because we struggle with the sin within. Which is what we saw in uh, Romans chapter 7. Those sins which beset us and which keep tripping us up. Uh, we also groan because of persecution from the surrounding world. People who give us a hard time for being a Christian. So Christians, you see, have more reason than most to groan in life now. So the question is, how does the Christian faith provide a framework which will equip us as Christians as we groan under the weight of life in a fallen world? Or to cast the question more positively, what will enable Christians to know that in the end all of this groaning will be worthwhile? Well, our passage today is full of groaning, and it provides some answers to these questions. And I'm say, I would say to you, it is vital for every Christian to have a biblical framework to understand suffering. Because it equips Christians to live life well now in a fallen, groaning world. It enables us to be realistic as to what to expect of life now, and what we can look forward to in the next and it means that we can live life now with a sense of perspective. Now, if you were with us last week, we saw that uh, every Christian is indwelt by God's Spirit. And we saw that through the Holy Spirit, uh, we have this priceless privilege of adoption into God's family. And consequently, we are ensured a great future inheritance. However, in the last verse of the passage last week, uh, the orchestral woodwind melody of adoption and inheritance gives way to a more dissonant note. 
Here it is again, chapter 8, verse 17. And now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Excuse me. Uh, Paul was doing quite well up to this point, but uh, all this talk of adoption and sharing in Christ's glorious inheritance, uh, he really had our number, didn't he? Sharing in Christ's glory sounds great to me. But I'm not so convinced with all this talk of sharing in Christ's suffering. The question is, what does Paul mean when he talks about sharing in Christ's glory? Well, it's biblical language for what happens to us when Christ finally comes back. When he comes back and restores all things. Christ will one day return in all his glory and all his power. And of course it will be a day of both judgment and joy. On that day, Christ is going to exercise his power to wonderfully renew the world. The bodies of believers, they're going to be resurrected. They're going to be transformed, immortal. That day will be glorious. But the day of this glorious inheritance lies in the future. And the present is very different. A Christian's experience of life now does include peace and it does include joy. But the broader context in which these things are set is groaning and suffering. Now think about it. What was the pattern for Christ's life? If you remember, as the resurrected Christ explained to those two confused followers on that first Easter Sunday in Luke 24, he says this to them. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Christ had to die on the cross. He had to suffer before he then got to his glory. And just as this was the pattern for Christ, so also it is the pattern for those who will follow Christ. Suffering now in this life glory in the world to come. Indeed, what we're seeing is the suffering and the glory, they're actually married together and they cannot be divorced. 8 verse 17 again. Uh, We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So we can't have the glory without the suffering. So, uh, groaning in this life now, It's a realistic and it's a right expectation. Maybe this all sounds very glum, somewhat miserable, somewhat morose. Maybe it sounds very negative. Is this part of the Bible's teaching that really paints the Christian faith in a a bad light? Should we avoid this passage when explaining to those who aren't yet Christians what Christians believe? I would put to you exactly the opposite. What we're seeing in this passage is a glorious aspect of the Christian faith. When it comes to the Christian's experience of suffering now and glory then, what we're going to see is this. Comparably, there is no comparison. I think that's actually a tautology. But comparably, there is no comparison. Look at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He says, I consider. Uh, Actually, the the term rendered I consider is an accounting term. 
In other words, Paul is doing the maths. And when Paul enters the data into his spreadsheet, he finds it's like the difference between one cent and a million dollars. There is no comparison. Our present sufferings, whilst real, comparably are insignificant. Why? Because the glory to come is so great. The glory to come is greater in two senses, uh, in duration and in degree. In duration and degree. Uh, I hope you picked that up from the kids' talk, uh, the duration. Uh, we're not going to spend any more time on that now. But also, you see, the suffering and glory pattern doesn't just apply to duration, but also to degree. It doesn't just apply to God's children, but also to the whole of creation. What we're going to see is this. Uh, this suffering and glory motif, this pattern, we're going to see in verses 19 to 22, it's actually traced in creation and reality for creation. And then in verses 23 to 25, suffering and glory is also the pattern for God's children. So God's creation and God's children. Let's look at the first, the sufferings and glory of God's creation. Look at verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Uh, it's talking, of course, as if the creation is personified. That the creation is waiting eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. Uh, if you were with us last week, we saw that at the point of faith in Christ, we become a son of God. Uh, we saw we become heirs, but we haven't yet got our hands on the inheritance. The full benefits of sonship have yet to be bestowed on us. And in some senses, it's therefore hidden as to who are truly sons of God. Uh, Christians suffer the frailty of life in a fallen world like everyone else. And their bodies deteriorate and die just like everybody else's. But when Christ returns, their bodies are raised immortal. And then it will be clear to all as to who are the sons of God. And do you see? That is the day for which the creation eagerly awaits the return of Christ. Why does it wait eagerly for that day? And the answer comes in verses 20 to 22. And here we get a microcosm of the Bible story of creation. Uh, that these three verses summarize the Bible story of creation in the past, in the future, and in the present. So firstly, in the past, we're seeing creation has been subjected. Subjected to frustration. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. When the first humans rebelled against God, his judgment fell, not just on them, but also on the whole natural world. Genesis 3.17, of course, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. And my garden is a testimony to that, believe me. And it's not just, therefore, humanity that pays the penalty. The whole of the creation cops the curse. Uh, there is a collateral damage that fractures every aspect of the natural world. And now nature is not what it ought to be. And it's not what it was created to be. Uh, that original perfect order has been lost. Uh, the harmony has given way to 
disorder, to disease, to decay, and to death. You see, nature can no longer do its job. It can no longer perfectly perform its God-given purpose. And so creation is frustrated. But that is not to be the end of the creation. Because then we see, we look to the future, there will be a day when the creation will be liberated. Uh, through God's grace, uh, the ejected and dejected Adam and Eve were promised a future reversal and restoration. And that promise also extends to include the whole of the natural world. So the creation shares in the same hope of a future great reversal and a restoration. Look at verse 21 onwards. Continuing, it says, In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So you see, when the sons of God are finally revealed when Christ returns, decay and disorder will be replaced in the whole creation by newness and harmony. Which brings us back to the present, because therefore in the present, the creation is groaning, but it does so in hope. Look at verse 22. Uh, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Now the groaning as in the pains of childbirth, it's a very clever metaphor. It places the groaning in a context of longing for the arrival of a new life, of a new order. And if you're unsure of how that comparison works, have a word with any mother here. So, creation does experience frustration now. Uh, creation does groan now. But it does so with a certain hope that one day it will be liberated and restored to glory. So where does, that, where does that leave us? As we move on to verses 23 to 25, and we see now the suffering and glory of God's children, we see that four practical implications flow out of this. We're going to see, firstly, that Christians in life now enjoy partially, they groan inwardly, they wait eagerly, and they wait patiently. So let's look at the first of those. That Christians enjoy partially. Look at verse 23. Uh, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Uh, the birth image is now replaced by an agricultural image. Uh, the baby has changed to a harvest. In the present, Christians have the first fruits of a great harvest to come. Uh, now, not being a rural community, we are somewhat removed from the realities of agricultural life, of what harvests are and what the term first fruits mean. Uh, the closest we get to appreciating the seasonal agricultural cycle is the fluctuation of mango prices in coals. But when a farmer plants a field of wheat, he has to wait, of course, for the crop to grow. And he's out every day inspecting the shoots and the stalks. And then one day he sees what he's been waiting for, the first heads of wheat on the stalk. And it's the point at which he starts to see the first fruit. And he knows, therefore, that in time, the remainder of the field and the harvest will follow, unless, of course, a cyclone blows through in Queensland. Now, the first fruits indicate that the harvest is on its way. 
although the harvest has not yet come in all its fullness. So coming back to us, uh, we have, if we're Christians, the first fruits of the Spirit. So now we see what it is. It's the first evidence of fruit in our life produced by God's Spirit in our hearts. Every Christian, of course, we saw last week, has the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the Spirit gives us the fruit, new life in our hearts, uh, growth and change. We become more like Christ and his character. The Spirit gives us gifts to serve others and to love, love others. So you see, in this life, through his Spirit, God has begun a redemptive work in us. But God's redemptive work in us will only be completed finally in the world to come. Uh, the full harvest of God's redemptive work in my life and in yours is yet to come. Therefore, it means this. Every Christian is a work in progress. Uh, we have been incorporated into the trajectory of God's redeeming purposes. But we haven't yet reached the end of the rainbow. And so in this life, we can only ever enjoy partially the fruit of redemption. So firstly, uh, Christians in life now enjoy partially. Secondly, uh, Christians groan inwardly. Because we see now it's not only the creation that groans in its bondage to decay, Christians groan also. Look <coughs> at verse 23. Uh, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. As I've already alluded to, uh, as well as groaning under the weight of life in a fallen world which inflict everyone, uh, Christians have additional reasons to groan. Uh, they suffer from the war within, with sin within and the persecution of the world around. Because we know of the harvest to come, we feel that tension, don't we? We groan because we live in the now and yet the not yet. Do you see what this means for the Christian's expectations of life now. It means it is okay to groan. Groaning is a legitimate and healthy part of a Christian life. In other words, the Christian life isn't just about grinning, but also groaning. And if anyone tries to make out that the Christian life should be just about grinning, they are being less than honest and they're being unbiblical. So, Christians enjoy partially now, they groan inwardly now, uh, thirdly, they wait eagerly now. Uh, continuing again with verse 23. And uh, not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Of course, it's not only the creation that waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. Uh, the sons of God themselves, Christians, should wait eagerly for their adoption to be fully realized. They should wait eagerly for their inheritance to be fully bestowed. Uh, the verb rendered uh, wait eagerly, one accomplishes a great definition of it. Uh, to wait eagerly means this, uh, to wait with head raised and the eye fixed on the point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. Head raised, eye on the horizon, unflinchingly waiting and looking to the horizon. Uh, maybe some of you have seen the film Red Dog. 
Uh, it's a good film, Australian film, about a, a dog who's sort of ready in colour and uh, who has a, a master uh, living out in Western Australia uh, to whom the dog is undyingly devoted. But then, of course, one day uh, the master is killed in a motorcycle accident and the dog thereafter cannot live life without him. Even though the dog then has a new master and somebody who cares for him, the dog is always waiting, looking to the horizon, expecting any moment his master to return. And such it should be for Christians as we wait. We should be in a sense like a red dog waiting, with our eyes fixed on the horizon. Waiting for, as the verse says, the redemption of our bodies. It's interesting just to tease out what that means. What does it mean? to wait for the redemption of our bodies when Christ returns. Well, we know, don't we? Firstly, physically, uh, our bodies are frail. Uh, They get weary. Uh, They get ill. They age, and they slowly trundle down the long slope, eventually to death. And God promises that in the age to come, these these bodies will be raised and transformed. They will be made immortal. Uh, We will have new, imperishable resurrection bodies, just like Jesus. So the redemption of the body means that, but it also means more of that. It's not just physical, because it's also spiritual. By nature, we are also spiritually frail now. Remember what Paul describes in chapter 7, uh, the war with sin within. And do you remember his cry at the end of the chapter, 7 verse 24? What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Rescue from this body will mean full and final deliverance from the sin within. So, that is what we long for. That is what we keep our eyes fixed on the horizon for. The redemption of our bodies and the transformation, both outwardly and inwardly, that God has promised. So Christians not only wait eagerly, but also, fourthly, they wait patiently. Look at verses 24 to 25. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Uh, Do you see where the Bible's centre of gravity is? Uh, If you follow the gaze of the biblical writers, it is focused in the world to come. Uh, That is Christian hope. Christian hope is a confident looking forward to something glorious that is to come but which we don't yet have. Uh, Biblical hope has no sense of uncertainty. We know that the exhilarating day when Christ returns to restore all things is coming. But it's not yet here. And we can't yet see it. And so we live in hope. Can you imagine how glorious it would be to live in a world without any groaning. It would be a perfect, natural world. We would have immortal bodies that are immune to decay, disease and death. Nurses and doctors would be out of a job. Uh, Souls which have been cleansed of all sin. We would then have the capacity to have perfect relationships together and perfectly love each other. A perfect and peaceful society. Often we think, don't we, of salvation in very narrow terms. We talk about redemption, and we just think about it in a very individualistic sense of the saving of my soul. 
but is far more than that. Redemption is the restoration of absolutely everything, including the whole of the natural world. Now here's a question. So how does this hope give Christians power and perspective to cope with the groaning of life in the present? I've used this illustration once before, but it's uh, such a good one and it fits so well that I'm, uh, I'm going to use it again. Uh, if you've heard it, bear with me. If you've not, uh, please enjoy it. Uh, it's very helpful for understanding how life helps us, how, sorry, how hope helps us in life now. Imagine two women who were each given a cleaning job for a year. Uh, the responsibilities of the job are exactly the same. Uh, they are crushingly mundane and dispiriting, really. Uh, the only difference is that they will each be paid at the end of the year. And for one woman, she will receive $15,000. And the other woman will receive $15 million for doing exactly the same job. How will the prospect of what they will be paid at the end of the 12 months help them during the year? Uh, for the lowly paid woman, it's going to be a real grind. It's not really going to motivate her. Uh, she's may even give up. But for the other woman, the prospect of 15 million bucks, it's going to galvanize her and energize her. It's going to carry her through the times when she finds the job is a bit of drudgery and when that is a real struggle. And so you see, so it is for the Christian. Uh, we have this unimaginable inheritance to come, far greater than 15 million bucks. It's life in all its fullness in a perfectly restored world. Ecstatic enjoyment of life as it was meant to be. Glory, joy, peace and perfection. And that prospect of the glory to come galvanizes us and it energizes us as we groan now. It keeps us going. So like Red Dog, we live with one eye fixed on the horizon from which our master will come. And we wait patiently and expectantly. As we close, there are two dangers for Christians which flow out of this. Uh, some Christians, firstly, will suffer from a lack of patience. Uh, they want to experience in this world what God has reserved for the next world. They believe that if we have sufficient faith in God, he will bless us now with good health and amassing wealth. And sadly, the Bible's message becomes distorted. Uh, it becomes a Christianity which focuses primarily on the present. Uh, they claim that God's will for our lives now is happiness, comfort, total fulfillment and satisfaction. But that is not true-blooded Christianity. It's actually a watered-down version for modern Western palettes. And its danger is, lies in this. It sets a false expectation for the Christian life, which God has never committed to deliver. And when God doesn't deliver, the fault is seen to rest either with God or with us. And it leads to anger at God or guilt at ourselves. Ultimately, it leads to spiritual ruin. That's the first danger, a lack of patience. But the second danger is this. We may have a lack of expectation. You see, it's also possible for Christians to fall off the other side of the horse. Uh, the other danger is that they lose any sense of eager expectation 
of the worlds to come. They lose sight of the horizon. Their hope no longer lifts their sights in the midst of their groaning. Their longing lapses into lethargy. Hope is white-empted into apathy. So in conclusion, how does our Christian experience compare to Romans chapter 8? Are we expecting to enjoy only partially whilst groaning inwardly? Are we waiting eagerly and waiting patiently? Because these are all aspects of Christian hope. It is a life lived in the present, but orientated in the life to come. I found this great uh, quote in the commentary, let me give it to you, because it summarises it beautifully. It says this, We know that all our best days lie ahead of us, and that one day all our painful days will lie behind us. It's great, isn't it? We know that all our best days lie ahead of us, and that one day all of our painful days will lie behind us. And so we wait eagerly, we wait patiently, knowing that the pain will pass, and that this life is not all there is. Christians can look forward to the day, which, uh, as C.S. Lewis puts it, and I'll quote him, this is a quote from his book, Mere Christianity, and this is what we'll close with. He says this, God will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of scripture which gives us a realistic expectation of life now, living in a fallen world, but also gives us hope for and a perspective to live with of the glories of the life to come, a liberation from our bondage to decay. Please, we pray, help us to live out this passage in our daily life, to wait patiently and expectantly as your people. And we do pray that you would hasten the day when the Lord Jesus does return to restore all things. Help us remain faithful and waiting for that day. Amen.